All right, welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm Don DiMuccio. And later on in today's show, we have an interview with a true rock and roll survivor. As a member of the legendary 1970s rock juggernaut Badfinger, this singer-guitarist rose to the ultimate highs, handpicked by the Beatles themselves to record for their company Apple Records, only to endure every pitfall imaginable due to bad business decisions, thieving management, including the tragic suicides of two bandmates. But through it all, he's endured and has a new album coming out next month. Of course, I'm talking about the surviving member of Badfinger, Joey Marland. But first, I'm really excited about my co-host today and his dog. I have never formally met this gentleman, but he played a major role in my life by teaching me all about the rock era from the time I was 11. As host of 94HJY's Rock and Roll Root Cellar, and before that, Sunday morning 60s, this man turned me on to bands like Blue Chair, The Chambers Brothers, Early Deep Purple, Chicago Transit Authority, and man, I soaked it all up like a sponge and I never looked back. I guess what I'm saying is if you don't like what I do, blame him. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast veteran broadcaster Jim Van. And uh, thank you. Uh, somebody just delivered a uh, lawsuit to me already. You didn't oh, waste any time. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> How the hell are you, Jim? Uh, well, I'm doing great. I'm here with my loyal dog on my lap at this point, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's a little little craziness here. But uh, other than that, you know, I, I was thinking as the uh, as the intro was playing at the very end when you play the who and the yeah. Yep. I, I I was down, and today being nine eleven. Uh, by the way, it's yeah. uh, uh, we're we're basically we're all thinking about you know the World Trade Tower, sure. and uh, we were down. It was I think the weekend after the disaster. My wife and I and my kid were down in New York City. You know, we're actually we we're in Queens, and we were basically staying at a uh, hotel where you could look out and you could see the smoldering ruins oh of God. the. Uh, yeah, it was pretty intense. But my kid is on the bed, and they were doing a concert in in commemoration of uh, the whole thing. And The Who came on, you know, well, the surviving members of The Who. Yep. And at the end, you know, my kid, who was all of like, oh, God, what was she? She was like a year old. At the end of uh, Won't Get Fooled Again. And Daltrey does it, yeah, and at the end. Right. And my kid raises her arm. This is a year old, raises her arm and goes, yes. You know, it was just so cool to see. You have raised a rock and roll genius right well, there. Well, I used to tell people that she's uh, grown into a Mick Jagger. Uh, you know, yeah, in some cases, Mick Jagger, in some cases, more like Keith Richards. But, oh, no, we, we won't get into that much. We've all gone through our Keith Richards phase. Uh, we, we all we all have. Uh, uh, even Keith Richards has gone through his phase. Exactly and, uh, right. It's just been a lifetime of right. uh, phases for him. Unfortunately, but, I'm uh, in my Pat Boone phase now, so... <laughs> I will always ascribe to the gospel of rock and roll. Of course, and, of course. You, you know, it's funny. I was thinking after we've certainly exchanged 
uh, a lot on um, you know on Messenger and yeah. stuff. And I was thinking back because um, I'm an old man, you know, and, uh, and, and and not that I mind that I'm enjoying it actually, but I basically heard my first rock and roll song. I think it was I I was probably six. So that would have made it 1957, okay. and it was um, it was uh, Chuck Berry, uh, "Sweet Little Sixteen," mm. and from there I, you know, that just I, I I heard it and that was it for me, you know. And I think after that it was uh, David Seville, who would later be famous for the Alvin and the Chipmunks. He did something called the Witch the Doctor. Witch Doctor, yeah, yeah, you know. And so I I've gone through all of that. And then, you know, you know, into, you know, later on the uh, Pat Boone you talk about. And, and, <laughs> that was and, a joke. <laughs> but but it's a true joke. I and, know. And, you know, and there was Perry Como in there. And there was. Uh, well, it was pop know, music back then. It wasn't just it, rock it, and roll. It was, yeah, it was it was it, it was a, a mix. Definitely. Because yeah. you had Frank Sinatra in there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, later on, you had Frank Sinatra and then. The next song, I, I grew up uh, I, I, down in southern Rhode Island, so I listened to WABC a lot, uh, you know, from uh, New York. Mm. And, you know, that was a mix of, like, Frank Sinatra, and then they would play the Beatles, and it would be Paul Moriart, and then they would, you know, they, they would play, you know, I mean, it was just back and forth, you know, all sorts of stuff that was like rock and roll and pop. And what a fascinating time to grow up, you all know? Right. Then you come along uh, later, and you know here I am with the root cellar. And <laughs> well, first yeah. of all, you've got my attention deficit kicking in here. Paul Murray, uh, blue is blue, something like that. Uh, lo love is blue. Love yeah. is blue. That's yeah, it. Love is blue. Yeah, Jeff he Beck was, did a version of that. He did. Yeah. Do a, uh, that's right. You're you're absolutely right. Let me backtrack a little bit, and for uh, those who sure. might not know, you were on HJY. You, from my understanding, you were also in the business end of it, not just an on-air personality. Uh, yeah, I was. I was both. I was. Uh, I was promotion director there. Actually, two passes on that. Yeah. Hjy loves firing people. That's that's one of their main deals. Is they uh, they tend to fire people. But I remember and, uh, you on Sunday mornings from nine to one o'clock. Yeah, actually, it's kind of cool because I lived over on the east side. And except in the winter, I would just, I had a milk crate. I would throw a bunch of albums into it and uh, I'd strap them onto the bike and I would bicycle over to the radio station. So I was over there and, you know, all worked up at, you know, oh my God, you know, it's like I was, I was there usually for about 7.30. There were various points. I was there for a while from eight to noon and then it went from 10 to noon, and then it went from uh, 9 to noon, and then it settled back again to 8 to noon. So trying to fill four hours. They, they had a lot of albums uh, at HJY, but uh, most of it was uh, current music. So it was a real it was a real charm. Did you start in 81? Uh, no, I started in, uh, I started a year later. Who was still there that was surviving and on the air? That would have been Rick O'Bake. Oh, that's right. Yep. Rick was one of the originals. He was there. Uh, finally, you know, they, I mean, they, they didn't pay. Uh, a lot of us didn't get paid very well. Uh, Carolyn Fox got paid well. But uh, everybody else, uh, I mean, Carolyn Fox actually got paid more than her boss. You I know? believe it. 
<laughs> but uh, and Carolyn's cool, you know, and uh, you know, she's um, you know she just basically knew how to negotiate a good deal. Sure, they needed somebody there for that time, and she was the girl. You and we've know? had Rudy on the show too. He's great. He didn't get the you know the paycheck she did, you know. So it's it's, it's kind of. Kind of interesting. And you look at everybody today. Carolyn is very successful and in real estate down in New York and sells these, you know, trillion dollar apartments. Rudy, on the other hand, is really, he's sort of on the dole these days, living in Pawtucket, you know? Well, he's had some health issues and that's... He's, he's definitely, yeah, he's, that that's the deal is, is he had health issues. Yeah. yeah. Hey, we all get that way. We all get older and that happens. But Rudy is still incredibly creative. Uh, I love reading stuff when he posts it. Very yeah, sharp, it's, very funny and original. What I yeah, original. Yeah. Now you've been up and down the dial, from what I can see in your uh, resume over here, which I, you were nice enough to send me a copy. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. It's like you were on BCN in Boston, that, right? Nineteen seventy. I was. I was on BCN way back. That was uh, that was in my college days. They were over on Lansdowne Street, and uh, they had just transition over from really being a classical station. There was the Boston Concert Network, the Hartford Concert Network, and the New York Concert Network. They never made it to Providence with that for some reason, hmm. but uh, it was all classical music and they transferred over to uh, rock. 69, they made a partial transition. In 1970, they did the full thing. Sam Copper was program director there at the time. And Sam still does a show on uh, WRIU down in Kingston. The station that you put on the air. Yeah, that, uh, that's right. I don't think he's aware of that even. Yeah, I did. And I put the station on the air two years before I went to work at BCN. I understand that in 1965, you saw the Stones. Now, that was my first concert. Nothing like a concert of today. I mean, probably nothing like a concert of 1969 or 70. Uh, it, well, it, it was in, in a lot of ways. First of all, I think a number of people snuck in. Uh, this was held down at, I, I, I seem to recall, it was at the Yale Bowl in New Haven. It wasn't filled to capacity for a starter. There were not a ton of empty seats, but there were plenty. And I think that's how people snuck in. Um, nothing like a sign seating or anything like that. What about the and, PA? Oh, uh, in those days, in 1960, uh, in 65, Vox was a uh, huge player in the game. I remember uh, a couple of bands that I uh, worked with back then. The Vox Super Beetle was the amp to have. But, you know, those old amps were, they were still tube powered. Right. Because they didn't really start on the solid state stuff until about 1970. Um, I mean, it, tube amps are just so cool. They, are they, cool. they they really and especially like if you're doing the blues, which of course the Stones, especially in their early days, were yeah. very very much of a blues. You know, when you listen to things like Heart of Stone, you know, it's just like it, it's like just unbelievable listening to that bass coming through, and it's like you know, and and Richards on guitar, it's it's a totally different sound than when you hear them live today and everything is solid state. And well, what about whatever. live then? In other words, I'm trying to, as you're describing the record, I can't imagine that if you're sitting there and you've got, you know, 1,500 or whatever it was, girls screaming. It wasn't as bad as a Beatles concert, you know? No. Yeah, it was definitely, you had you had a time hearing things, you know? And what about, like, but, they couldn't have been any kick drum 
coming through the PA or anything like that? No, 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 no. You really didn't pick up a lot of that at all. Uh, at, at best, you uh, on the higher end, you might get a little bit of snare action coming through the PA. Uh. But you know, but that was that was a sum total. Well, let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum. Four years later, you went to this sleepy little town in upstate New York, Bethel. <laughs> And so, what, what was the name of the concert again? Um, oh, it was something. Uh, uh, it was named after a town in Vermont. Oh, no, no, it was Woodstock. That's what it was. Oh, the Snoopy's character. Yeah, oh, oh, you know, the, the, the summer of 69, I had three fabulous things happen to me. I think number one was, I got the hell out of high school. I managed to pass. The second thing was, I got to see Led Zeppelin in Newport. Was that the... Was it a pop festival, the new pop? I believe it was the jazz festival. I never remember it was the jazz or the blues. Who knew back then, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, just pass me another joint, you know? It's (laughs) like, simple as that. Sure, sure. Uh, uh, But it's like, so I went to see that, and I I had no idea what to expect. I was blown away. I I left there, and I I had actually, my heart was palpitating. I I mean, it just just blew me away to, to... all of them, but especially Page, the sounds that he could make with that guitar. I'd never seen anything like that. Were you aware of the first album at that point? No, not at that point, but I was about a week after that. Sure, I, sure. I was aware of the first one and bought it. Yep. Uh, I bought that, and I also bought Steve Miller's anthology, both at the same time. Yep. And uh, and uh, I, I can remember I made a, I made a mixtape out of them which in those days were reel-to-reel tapes. They didn't have cassettes. Right. You know, and so I did that. I go off to Woodstock, which was, and the story there is a trip in itself. I have a, uh, a few friends who were working, they were metal workers, who were working on the Providence Civic Center, putting it together at that point, right. you know, and, and mooning Salty Brian every morning because Salty used to <laughs> broadcast out of the metal building on top of the adjacent whatever the hell it was on Mason Street there. I managed to get a car, and uh, we all cruised up there together. It was like such a trip. Got there, it, you know, they, they were responsible for uh, putting up the uh, right-hand sound tower. Providence, Rhode Island's finest. Wow. I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're their finest or not, but... They, they were Providence, Rhode Island, anyway. Yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, and I just hung out, and I got to sit there and watch things like I was literally on the stage when uh, Richie Havens was. He was kind of pushed out there, yeah. to uh, to play, you know. And he did he did the whole freedom thing. That was all improv. They shoved him out there and to do freedom. He hadn't yet done done a set, so oh, oh. he was out there, and he was pretty scared shitless, I have to tell you. Uh, I mean, that, there were a lot of people there, you know? What was it, and, that the helicopters uh, couldn't get in, or the, or the, the roads uh, were blocked? And... The, the roads were blocked. They had to bring everyone in by chopper. Right. They had some problems getting a, a couple of the bands in. Although everybody ultimately made it, but you know, there is a great book. Michael Lang, who was, uh, there were several producers, but he was the guy. He was the guy with the concept and the whole bit and some experience. He put together a book. I think it's called The Road to Woodstock. 
Yeah, I know you can find it on Kindle. Yeah. It's a great book, and he describes a lot of that, especially the, the very beginnings of the concert and stuff. And uh, the hog farm, which I knew several people from the hog farm, you know, and uh, they were there acting kind of as mm, security and kind of as, mm, we'll feed people. You don't want to it, get it, in Wavy Gravy's uh, bad side. That's a, <laughs> wavy, wavy Gravy, by the way. Uh, is a, uh, I don't even know if he's still alive, but if he is, he was in those days, he was like a, a trust fund baby. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. He had more money than God. I forget his real name now, but, oh, uh, Hugh, Hugh something. Hugh. I, I think, yeah, that, I think that, I think that sounds right. Hugh, Hugh but, Romney. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I think it was, I think it was a, a, a Romney. He had, he, he um, I don't think he's any relation, but well, they're all related. <laughs> yeah. He was a, uh. He was definitely like, you know, not hurting for money. It's very funny, you know, when I when I look back on it. And of course, everything at Woodstock was spiked. Everything was spiked with acid. So if you drank water, you were tripping your brains out. If anything that you ate or drank, anything you put into your body, the chances were pretty good that you had, you know, some acid uh, flipping around in you. And to so, think uh, that, and you know, what blows my mind is that that logistical disaster waiting to happen uh-huh. didn't happen. It, it, it actually it pulled it off. We we actually, now I, I, I didn't leave till several days after the uh, concert because, of course, the towers had to be taken down right. and stuff, right? But uh, not that I did that, but I, it, it, and the place looked like this vast muddy trash dump tons of litter i mean you know they literally they brought in uh they brought in bucket loaders to clean up a lot of the crap uh at the end you know it, it was just it, it was it was pretty nasty so so but anyways it, the, the thing is is nothing major happened there you know in, in terms in terms of violence or anything like no. that and it was so cool and and people were just really I mean, they were just having a good time. They were just being very loose. And Think about a lightning know. strike that could have happened and could have taken out 100,000 people or something. It yeah. could have, or, you know, a freaking tornado could have popped up, right? Yeah, or those, or those, um, those scaffoldings could have fell. Uh, 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 true. Especially, uh, never mind. Uh, no, well, come on. Statue of Limitations is going by. No, I mean, look has. at Altamont. Um, Paul Mike Lynn yeah. tried oh, it again. Yeah. And not- what a disaster. Yep. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Altamont. I, I'm, I'm glad I didn't go to that. No. I, you know, I, 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 I've been to a lot of pretty, pretty prominent concerts over the years, but Altamont is one. I'm glad I skipped. You I know? think Jerry Garcia gets the line of the lifetime for that one. He said it was yeah. like a nice day in hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But- now, you also a roadie. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I picked up some work. I was still in the Navy when I did this. I worked on the uh, Grateful Dead Europe 72. I had uh, 30 days of leave coming and uh, just enough time to be able to do the Dead Europe 72 show, uh, concert, you know? So I did that. I got out about a year later off of active and immediately walked into uh, 10 years after uh, and, and did that. Oh, God. What else have I done? Did I you did ever de- work with Badfinger? I, I never worked with Badfinger, and I love Badfinger. You know, to, to this day, one of my favorite songs is If You Want to Come and Get It, you know? <laughs>
had its fair share of cautionary tales, but few matched the rollercoaster ride of a career my guest today had as a member of the legendary 1970s band Badfinger. As the first outside act signed to the Beatles' fledgling record label Apple Corps, the band racked up four top 20 hits, toured heavily, and paid the ultimate price for the crime of being too trusting of the often unscrupulous music business. But through it all, the one constant is his ability to produce truly great music. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Guitarist and singer from Badfinger, Joey Marland. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon to you, Donald. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. We've just went 12 rounds with technology. I did, yes. <laughs> I probably sound like I'm recording. <laughs> I, 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 Honest to God, I missed the days before cell phones, before computers, and things were just simpler. Well, you and I would probably be sitting in the same room that's, normally. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And I want to start off where I always generally tend to start off, because it seems to be the common denominator between us crazy musician types. When you were growing up in Liverpool, late 50s, early 60s, what were you listening to as a kid? Uh, well, I was listening to all the oldies like my mum and dad had. And, uh, but then I heard Elvis in 1958. Uh, I was 11 years old, and that uh, changed my life, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. And then I got into your Chuck Berry, your Carl Perkins, uh, Little Richard, all of it, really. Do you remember your first uh, single that you ever purchased? Um, no, no, no. I remember my first album. It was the Chuck Berry one with, uh, you know, where the profile of him looking on a white background? Yes. That's the one. I learned all those songs on there. <laughs> it was great. I used to play them on the street corners of Liverpool. Knock up. And what about radio? How important was radio to you? Um, pretty good. I mean, it was quite accidental that I heard Elvis Presley on there because we only had the BBC in England. But uh, there was a station out of Europe called uh, Radio Luxembourg that I soon got hip to. Through that little tiny radio station, I heard all your Tommy Tucker and the great R&B stars and started to get a little bit Tamla Motown coming in through there as well. Yeah. So really, they, they were like my favorite station at the time was Radio Luxembourg. And what sparked your interest to grab a guitar? Uh, Elvis Presley, actually. Uh, it was ac- I had blue suede shoes. And believe it or not, I'd never really been interested in the guitar. I was a normal kid playing football and uh, making bows and arrows and spears <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. And then I had blue suede shoes and went right into the front parlor of the house, got my brother Chris's guitar out and started to teach myself to play. I mean, it was immediate. 
There wasn't a day in between. It was immediate. I went right after Blue Suede Shoes, right into the front parlor and got the guitar out. And never looked back. Yeah, it really changed my life. Every day from then on, I spent, uh, when I got home from school, I'd go and get the guitar out and teach myself to play. Do you remember what that guitar was? What model? I believe it was a Hofner Senator. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't an electric guitar. It wasn't for about a year after that. My brother actually uh, joined a band in Liverpool, Tommy Somebody and the Somebodies, <laughs> and, and <laughs> he got an electric guitar. Then he got himself a Burns, uh, an English guitar. Yeah. I remember the rhythm guitar player had a Harmony Stratotone, which is an American guitar, and I spent my life searching for one of them. I eventually bought one at Willie's American Guitars in St. Paul, Minnesota, when I moved here. I've still oh, got it. Wow. It's one of my favorite guitars. Absolutely fantastic. And I would imagine, yep. like, back then, getting a Fender would have been, like, out of the question. Actually, in Liverpool, it wasn't that out of the question. Really? Uh, there's a, there's an article, I think, and Mick Jagger and, and Keith Richard are talking about guitars, and uh, they're talking about the Liverpool players coming down, and they'd always have Fenders and Gibsons and things like that which were hard to get in London, believe it or not. So they were always jealous of the Liverpool players. And if you look at the old players in Liverpool, they're playing things like that. George is playing the Gretsch. Right. He got that off a seaman who brought it back from America with him. John's playing a Rickenbacker he bought in Germany, actually. But in Liverpool, we had quite a good access to guitars, yeah. When I was 15, uh, I'd left school and I was working and I saved up my money and I bought myself a Gibson stereo, cherry red, just like Chuck Berry played. Yeah, I was, I was knocked out with it, yeah. <laughs> so I imagine all through those years as a teenager, you were knocking around different bands. And yeah. Tell me some of the experiences you had. The first band I played in where I made money was a band called uh, Profiles. The lead singer was my first songwriter I met. And I was knocking around already with a few musicians, but I didn't really know anybody. It wasn't until I joined those guys that I started to go to the Blue Angel and places like that and start to meet other musicians, uh, you know, on an off-duty basis. You know what I mean? Right. It took about two years to get into the scene in Liverpool and become like a musician in involved in that scene and during that time, I met all the bands. I met, you know, who I don't know, the Swinging Blue Jeans and all those guys, the Escorts, some of the older bands, uh, the, the uh, Searchers. Yeah. Were a, they were a band uh, generation before me, as the Beatles were. Right. You know, stuff like that. Just started to get the no musicians, really. Yeah, the Roadrunners. They were a great kind of uh, James Brown and the Famous Flames. Just great. Just great, great, great. <laughs> Silly question, but did you play the Cavern? Oh, yeah, we played the cavern there many times. I, the second band I joined was a band called The Masterminds. And not long after that, uh, we started to play the cavern. We got invited down there. We were the house band at the Blue Angel, which is a famous late-night drinking club in Liverpool. Mm -hmm. And uh, we started to play the cavern. We started to do the lunchtime and the evening sessions. I'd been the cavern uh, and seen bands play when I was working as a boy. Yeah. Uh, saw the Beatles there. It was a great place, uh, not a drinking club, so I could go in even though I was only 15, you know. It was great, man. It was a knockout. Seems very small. It seems very, you know, body on top of body. It seems like a fire hazard, to be honest, when you when you look at well, some it, of the it, pictures. It, it was a fire hazard, except for the humidity caused by the density of the crowd. Yeah. They're, you know, there'd be about 200, 300 people in that little room. Right. 
and it was in the basement of a seed warehouse, you know, where fruit and grain and stuff were stored. Yeah. Anyway, and down in the basement, they opened the cabin. It was a jazz club, and then it was a skiffle club, and then it was a beat club. Great place to play, great place to go and see a band, uh, see anybody. It was just a great sounding room, really dense, like you say, a lot of people, thick atmosphere. The only bad thing you could do down there was smoke cigarettes. Uh, but man, it was good, and the atmosphere was fantastic. I'm actually embarrassed to admit that for many years I did not realize that the Ivy's and Batfinger's relationship with Apple and with the Beatles actually predates your joining the band. Yeah, um, oh yeah, oh yeah. But that said, can you give us a little backstory on how the Ivy's came to their attention? The Ivy's had already moved to London. Uh, Bill Collins, the, the manager from Liverpool guy, uh, he brought them to London and started to school them in writing songs and train them to be songwriters. He figured that's where the future was. They did that, and through them writing all those songs, there was another connection. Um, Bill was a friend of Paul's father who played trumpet in a jazz band in Liverpool. Right. And Bill played piano in a jazz band in Liverpool. Not the same band, but he knew him through that scene, you know. Yeah. So when the Ivies got to London and started writing songs and making tapes, found out the Beatles were recording, and they were, he also found out they were starting a record label. And he took the tapes down to Abbey Road, talked his way into to Abbey Road. He was an old scouser, and he said he knew Paul's dad. So they took him in. And he got in to see the Beatles and he talked his way uh, with Paul McCartney and he ended up giving him a tape of the Ivy's songs. One way or another, he hustles out here into a deal for the Ivies at Apple. Yep. And didn't Mal Evans also play a certain role in that? I think Mal had gone and seen them at the marquee. Yeah. Uh, and they were a good little live band, you know, great vocals, great players. The bass player was, was, was extra good. Tommy was a really good guitar player. Pete was an excellent guitar player. So, And they all three of them could sing like birds. Yeah, great high voices, three-part harmonies. Uh, they had all that going, and they were writing songs. So that was a lot of a lot of good things for a band in those days. And of course, you mentioned the guitar players. Now you were replacing a bass player. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Now what happened was when Ron, the bass player, left, uh, Tommy decided he was going to play bass. So they started looking for a guitar player. And uh, a mate of mine, a bass player, who was a good friend of McCartney's as well, Billy Kinsley. He actually went for the job as a bass player, and when he found out they were looking for a guitar player, he recommended me for the job. That's how I got the job. And were there any any problems, any issues with Tom Evans switching from guitar to bass, or was that something he was willing to do anyways? No, he wanted to do it. Yeah, he wanted the band to have more of a solid bottom feel to it. Right. Uh, a bottom rhythm to it, a rock and roll rhythm. So he wanted to play bass with Mike, you know, and drive Mike. And he was a hell of a bass player. Yeah, it turned out that way, didn't it? Yes. Turned out great. Yeah, yes. yeah. Not a lot of guys could make that transition so easily or willingly. No. So well, Tommy, yeah, Tommy had a good gift as far as that goes. He's one of those, when he played guitar, he always knew what he was playing, you know. I mean, when I say he would, he would always go to the right note on the guitar. Right. You know what I mean? He just had a good gift for it. So, yeah, yeah, it worked out great. Now, I got to ask you because you mentioned Bill Collins. And for people who don't know, that was the guy who discovered the Ivies and kind of like a Brian Epstein figure, except he was a little bit of an older gentleman from what I can see. Moved them all into their house. You know, today, all of my red flags would be going up. Did yeah. You, did, yeah. You, did you trust him? I did, yeah. Bill was, uh, Bill was a trustworthy guy. Um, 
this was a guy who cashed in his life insurance policy to look after the band. Ah, okay. Um, okay. This guy had a big heart and he loved it and he loved the music. He, uh, you know, he, he played piano with us whenever he could. And, uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah, he was a great old guy. Clear something up for me. The name Badfinger, why was it necessary to change? You had the single out. Why the name change? And who came up with the name Badfinger? The band wanted a more rock and roll name. And there was another band in England called the Ivy League. And they were having hits at the same time. They sang in the, in the upper registers and did like three-part harmony. Uh, so there was already a band called the Ivy League. And uh, uh, it just didn't sound, you know, the Ivies didn't really sound like a you know rock and roll right. band. You know, so they wanted to change it for something uh, Badfinger came from the Beatles had recorded uh, with a little help from my friends. You know, the the one Ringo did on Sgt. Pepper. And they'd already recorded a demo of that. And they called it Badfinger Boogie because uh, John played the piano. And I think he made a couple of screw-ups <laughs> on the uh, on the piano. He played piano on the demo. Yeah. So uh, that's, where it, that's where it came from. And Neil Aspinall suggested it. What about Badfinger? And, uh, you know, all the other people had suggested names. John wanted to call them the Pricks. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. You know, like Pre. Pre, like P-R-A-X, Pre. yeah. But it was really the Pricks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Paul wanted to call them Mother's Little Helpers. Yeah. And uh, so neither of them would really work. But anyway, they tried, you know, the normal 100 names thing. And, and then Neil suggested Badfinger. Right. And, and everybody jumped on that right away. So, yeah, it's a cool name. Very cool name. But that first album was shelved. Is it because of Alan Klein, or what was the story behind that? No, it was uh, it was their first album, and there were great hopes for it. Tommy had written a song called Maybe Tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow I will love again. I'll never know until I've looked into her eyes. Maybe tomorrow I will love again. I'll never know until I've seen her once or twice. They'd done a, a fabulous uh, recording of it with, uh, who was the producer now? Uh, uh, Tony Visconti. Tony Visconti, yeah. Did the arrangement, did the strings and everything, and everybody had high hopes, actually really expected it to be a hit record, and it flopped. Uh, and they'd already recorded an album to go along with it. And the album was called Maybe Tomorrow. It was released in Italy, I think. But uh, there was no interest in it in England. So it was never put out. No, it wasn't. It was later put together with, the, with Come and Get It and the other three songs that Paul produced. And they took eight songs from the Maybe Tomorrow album and made a new Badfinger album out of it. You know? That first album, I tried to grab a copy. They wanted like $800 for it. Very, yeah, very yeah. How to get the collector's <laughs> item? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Yep. Hope you saved a couple. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, again, you were not on those recording sessions. Um, no, right? no. Your first no. album was The Great No Dice, which features a near perfect rock radio hit no matter what. Oh, yeah. I will. 
One fucking whale of a group. <laughs> so tell me some of the memories of your first recording sessions with the band. Uh, the first song we did was No Matter What. It was just after I joined. I joined them, I think, in November, and we started recording it in December, I believe. Come and Get It was already released, I think, in America then. Either way, it was the first song we did. Yeah. And, uh, and then we did another song of mine called Friends Are Hard to Find, which... Well, wasn't put out on the first album. We did that in a little studio in London. I can't remember the name of it. It wasn't like Olympic. No, it wasn't Olympic. No, I would have remembered that. Uh, It was one of the smaller places. Uh, We went and did that. I think Mal was there when we did that record. We went and finished it at Abbey Road. I remember because I remember doing the uh, Lap Steel solo in Abbey Road in the big studio there. How come you didn't record it at Apple? I mean, that was up and running, right? Yeah, it was, but there were things wrong with it. And it was just, uh, we were going in to cut some songs because uh, the Beatles or whoever, the powers that be, wanted us to go in and record some more songs. So yeah. that's what we were doing. So well, That album also features a uh, beautiful original song considered a rock ballad standard now, Without You. Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah. later made famous by Harry Nielsen. Like, they tell me Mariah Carey covered it. I don't care about that. Uh, uh, she did though yeah. a lot of other people yeah, too and yes did you know at that time that Pete and Tom had written a masterpiece no we had no idea I actually had no idea about the song at all uh, Pete and Tommy had, uh, had two separate songs and Tommy had the without you chorus and Pete had the verse but he didn't have a chorus and it was our manager Bill Collins who suggested that we try sticking those two ideas together that might make up a song for us so we did. We did it at Abbey Road. Uh, took a few hours, uh, a little bit of guitar, and uh, recorded it. Well, I can't forget tomorrow When I think of all my sorrow I had you there, then I let you go And now it's only fair that I should let you know what you should know
turned out quite nice and we ended up putting it on the record. Little Blues Ballad was what we thought. Yeah. Yeah, but it was nice. It wasn't until we had Harry Nielsen's version of it uh, that our manager actually, again, Bill Collins, he was proved right because he said when we did it that he thought it was a great tune and that we should do a big version of it. He actually heard it like that, I'm sure, in his head. Yeah. And uh, a couple of years later, Harry Nielsen come down the aisle and knocked on our door and said, come and listen to this song that I've just done. And we went in the room with Harry and he played us without you, his version. Just knocked us out. We were blown away. And Bill's looking at us going, I told you so. Yeah. I told you so. <laughs> Around that time, you must have started your first tour with the band. Yeah, Come and Get It had come out, and I've been quite a big hit around the world, America included, of course. And uh, we tried to get some shows on it, but it was difficult because of the nature of the song, you know. And music was changing a little bit. We put No Matter What out, and that became a hit, and that was the grounds, really, for our big tour. We came over and got a load of dates, I think about 60 gigs, and we started playing all over America then. I think it was in 1971, was it? Uh, 70, 1970, I believe. Yeah. And uh, we came over in the fall, came into uh, Fargo, North Dakota was the first gig, I remember. Uh, and it was the first gig. Mm. And then we drove down to Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I met my future wife the next day, uh, Kathy. Oh. Yeah, we spent 39 years together, Kathy and I. God bless you. Yep. Yeah, God bless her. That's right. Anyway, uh, that was the start of our American career then. We started to play anywhere and everywhere they would book us. And, of course, we, we went on to have several hits here, several big hits. It was great. Baby Blue, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Knockout. you had worked with George on All Things Must Pass, as well as the concert for Bangladesh, quite famously. Any memories from that? Any oh, Loads of them, uh, loads of them, really. Uh, the George sessions... We'd go to Abbey Road each day for about two or three weeks, and uh, we'd learn some new songs with him, and we'd, we'd do all the backtracks. Uh, Ringo was there, Klaus Vorman playing bass, Billy Preston, Eric Clapton playing guitar, yeah, uh, and George, of course. And a few other people came by. Uh, I think Peter Frampton was on some of those sessions, there. right? Peter played on some of the lead guitar sessions when they were doing the overdose, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. and I think... Uh, Who's the drummer from Genesis again? I can't. Phil Collins. He played Phil, on uh, Apple Scruffs. He played, I yeah. think, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So it was a great a great adventure for us. We were kids. You know, I was, well, I wasn't a kid. I was 23, but uh, being surrounded by rock stars everywhere I looked was unbelievable. As an outsider, it seems to me that the fulcrum point in Badfinger's career came when you signed with New York City businessman, quote unquote, Stan Polly. Yeah, yeah. May he be looking up at us right now. <laughs> um, talk a little bit about him. Well, he, he was like everybody's dad when we met him. He, he was a big, tall American bloke, uh, had a big office in Central Park South, Count commendations from the New York City Police Department on the wall. We didn't know, of course, that he was a convicted felon. He was a bagman. He used to carry the bribes. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it was unbelievable. Uh, he had a law degree and uh, 
he seemed very intelligent and very knowledgeable about the business and uh, also about the financial side of the business. Uh, he set up our corporation um, and took care of all the money. Oh, he and sure he did. And he certainly took care of that money well. <laughs> For himself. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And, uh, of course, over the next few years, he made a fortune and cleaned us out. Again, I know, I know it's so easy for me to say watching a documentary or reading it in a book versus you being there and living it and being in the eye of the hurricane. But where was management? Where was Bill to look after you to say, no, don't sign this? Well, Bill didn't have the experience to deal with a thing like this. We were making a vast amounts of money uh, uh, 
And the, the manager, all, under the contracts we signed and the corporate papers we signed, even though we owned half of the company and he owned the other half and they were only supposed to take uh, 30%, the other 70% was our money. But that 70% was supposed to be put in like savings accounts for us. Right. It, it never was. It was all it all went into the corporation and Polly had access to it all. Right. And and he uh, he spent he spent it willy nilly, spent it like there was no tomorrow. He spent it on Rolls Royces and flying movie producers in from Hollywood to see if he could get uh, any movies. Uh, it's just, you know, yeah. unbelievable. The uh, Plaza Hotel bills, parties, parties for the guys, and not from his uh, cut, of course. No, not from, from his near... cut. No, that that was all his cut. We, we we paid the expenses. I read somewhere that there was an audit of his company, and that during a ten month period, I guess from between seventy and seventy one, you were paid roughly six grand a member. The company profited twenty four grand. And his commission was $75,744. It sounds impossible, but yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Uh, although the, 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 the amounts of money that I heard, because none of that, and I don't believe that you guys or whoever did that accounting, uh, counted all the publishing income and all this. Right. Record, the record royalties were phenomenal. Sure. We were, we were getting letters from Apple saying they'd just sent our management company in New York a check for £250,000. Hundreds of thousands of pounds routinely went to them in New York. And the total was eventually, in, by 74, that was up in the millions. Uh, we were up to about $6 million, $7 million uh, had gone. You saw none of it. We didn't get any of that except our routine wages. We all took wages because we wanted to save our money. Right. You know, so we took 350 a week. Uh, that was plenty for us. Sure. Uh, we'd buy a guitar here and there. Guitars weren't that expensive then. Right. Uh, none of us had a new car. Uh, none of us had a house. I rented my rented houses all the way through Badfinger. And when I left the band in late 74, uh, I had 700 bucks in the bank. Oh. To sin. That is a mortal sin. Well, before we get to uh, that, too, yeah. <laughs> how did you come about being talked into leaving Apple? We weren't talked into Apple. Apple was closing down. Apple was at the end of its run. Uh, uh, so we went. We went talked into that. We tried to stay with Apple. Uh, the Beatles had already given Apple to Alan Klein, you know? So we went to see Klein about renewing the contract in New York. Yeah. Uh, he said, well, we'll resign you, but we're not going to pay you the royalties that we're paying you now. We'll pay you this much royalties. He offered less royalties to us, and the Beatles, uh, uh, Apple, paid all our expenses yeah. for recording and all that stuff. He said, and that's over, too. You guys will have to pay your own expenses. So, Well, then that's uh, why you left. I can see your point now. Yeah, well, our manager, uh, Polly, went to Warner Brothers. They offered us a fortune. Three million dollar deal, three million dollar deal, solo deals. Yep, uh, that, we, that we could produce ourselves, and uh, a deal for six Badfinger albums, and they all paid us great money. So it was really worth it for us to sign with Warner's. Right, and it, it wasn't anything to do with us wanting to leave Apple. Right, right. You know that I think, or that song Pete wrote, the first song on the last Apple album, Ash, the Apple of My Eye. 
uh, is the song all about that. But um, now we never wanted to leave Apple. It was great, man. They, and they were great to us. What sure. the hell? Is this correct that when you did sign with Warners that Apple released an album at the same time your first Warners album came out? So they was- did, yeah. Yeah, both both those albums came out at the same time, yeah. Uh, the Ass album came out and the first Warner album, um, which was going to be called Wish You Were Here, actually. But I think it was called For Love or Money, wasn't it? Something like that. So tell me about when you did quit the band. For me, by that time, it was obvious that we were just getting ripped off and it just wasn't working. You know, uh, a couple of the members wanted to leave Polly and, uh, you know, one of the members particularly didn't want to leave Polly and one of the members was up in the air about it. But it just became just really frustrating. We couldn't get anything. We couldn't even buy equipment. We were told that we had no money. Pete didn't believe it, actually. Uh, He didn't believe uh, that Polly was a crook. Uh, he didn't believe that Polly was letting us down. Uh, we were getting our wages every month, but even that stopped in, I think, July of 74. Uh, he stopped paying us wages. So even that, it's like a final insult. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it went all the way to that. Um, there were no gigs. It was just it was just a completely frustrating situation, and we didn't know what to do about it. Yeah. Even though we had a letter, I had a letter in my hands telling me that Apple had just paid him £200,000. Uh, in royalties, I called up to buy a tape recorder. He said, there's no money. But I knew they just got. And that was like $500,000 in those days. You know? Of course. Uh, so he was telling us we had no money, and Apple had just sent him $500,000. Obviously, the last thing I'd ever want to do is tear open a wound. But for people who don't know, explain how those pressures you're talking about affected Pete Ham. Well, yeah, of course, Peter. Uh, when he found that out, which was 75 by the time he found that out and believed it, and his wife was going to go have a baby, and he thought by doing what he did that he would make somebody pay attention to it. You know, maybe the police would even pay attention to it. And he went out and he killed himself. He, he hung himself in his garage. Uh, he thought it would do somebody some good uh, somewhere, but I mean, I don't know why he did it really, but... Uh, it was it was a disaster. Obviously, uh, the band was already broken up. Polly had already broken the band up. Yeah, uh, he, he'd left everybody broke. I'd moved to LA by then. Uh, I was living in a spare room at one of my friend's apartments. Thank you know, thank the Lord they would let us do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we literally had nothing, and we weren't we weren't like rock stars. You know, we didn't walk around you know feeling like we were the greatest thing in the world or anything like that. So when you're down and out in the music business and, and you've got no money, you know, and you don't have some kind of big ego to to get yourself in the doors, it's very difficult to get work. You know, it really is because everything you did was because of the Beatles, and uh, you know it, it, it was it was just like that. It was cruel, but it was like that. You know, it's just the way it is. Yes, I got what I deserve. Kept you. Time without a word 
And that had to be annoying, too. I mean, being compared to being compared to it, that had to drive you crazy. Yeah, I did for a while at the very beginning, but we soon forgot about it because we were really pretty successful in our own right. And uh, If we could have just kept on playing and doing what we were doing, we would have been all right. You know, it would have worked out great. We just happened to get mixed up with that guy and, and his, right. his, way, his way of looking at the world, you know. So there was nothing we could do about it. And the band started to disagree with itself, you know. And a, a band is like a – I said to somebody the other day, the, a band is like an egg, you know, and you crack that shell, it starts to run out, the spirit of the band. Sure. You know, the actual thing that makes the band good uh, starts to disappear. And that happened to Badfinger. Yeah. There was no way around it. We did, I didn't think we wanted to break up. I didn't hate Peace. I don't think he hated me. Right. Tommy and I didn't hate each other. And Mike and I played for years to come. That's right. Tommy and I went on to make records together. So um, it, was just, it was just a disaster in, in, all, those, in all those ways, you know. Sure. Silly. Silly. Well, I want to take a point of personal privilege here. When I was 13, I was lucky enough to see you. And it was I looked it up. Sunday, August 5th, 1984, at a club in Providence, Rhode Island called Lupo's. And it was the 20th anniversary of British rock. And, wow. And I got, got wow. To, I got to meet you. It was uh, Jerry Marsden, Billy J. Kramer, Herman Hermits, the Trogs. But I, I was yeah. I was I was there to see you guys, and that's God honest truth. And I was I was lucky to be there too. I guess there was an afternoon show for all ages, and the truck broke down, so you guys never did that show. So the, ah! so the owner said, "All right, I'll I'll sneak you back in later," you know. And I came yeah, in. I was yeah. lucky to see it. My point being, besides bringing my own personal anecdote in, is that you kept going. Now I don't know. Was Mike Gibbons with you on that tour? Do you remember? Yeah, he was. He was okay. Yeah, he was on that tour. Yeah. Now, Tom was alive at that time. Uh, yeah. In no, 80- Tom wasn't alive. Tom died in 1983. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was 85. No, no. Okay, so he died. Before. I mean, I know he also committed suicide. Um, yeah, yeah. We'd all been broke for years, and we had a lot of money. When when, when the band broke up, uh, Neil Aspinall, uh, who ran Apple Records and Apple Publishing, uh, they had nowhere to send the money. The royalties, because they were still coming in in large amounts. Of course. So they they started to put it in an escrow account for bad thing. Yeah. And eventually, uh, Neil went to court, and he gave all the money to the court in London. And he, he had a thing called an interpleader put together, and the court agreed to set up a bank account for the band, and all the royalties would be paid into that. And we could only get those royalties when all four of us, or, you know, like Pizza State and the other three of us, and Bill Collins, because we were all partners, uh, would make an agreement uh, that would decide where the money went, who got how much of the money. Yeah? Because it wasn't a simple division between all of us. And Pete had written the big hits. And, you know, Tommy and he had written Without You. And we'd all, I'd written over half of the other songs. Sure. and so we, you know, we all had a good bit of money coming, and there was a lot of artist royalties in there too, that we all split equally. So we had to agree to that. Now Pete's family was was unaware really of any agreements between the band, and uh, you know, Tommy. Well, different people were, were were in different moods about how the money should be split. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill wanted to uphold the original agreement that they'd had. They had it before I joined the band. I just came party to it when I joined. And they made me sign to it, actually. 
and that was a, a, a involved the publishing royalties. Right. So, so that was a kind of a a bit of a, a bit of a thing uh, that caused the delay in the thing. Um, I don't want to go into the details of it, only because it doesn't really affect me. But it affected uh, it affected Tommy's story, and yeah. it affects uh, it affects his and Mike's relationship, really. Yeah. But um, anyway. Uh, we all ended up going to court in 1985 just to get through this, actually, and let you know this. Yeah. We went to court in London in 1985 and divided the money up, uh, as, as we all agreed to divide it. Everybody got their money, everybody got their share, and it was enough money for me to come back to America and buy a house with. Nice. That's yeah. how much money there was there. Sure. Uh, which, and it was a great thing for me. And since 1985... All of us have gotten our share of that money, and oh. share of the, and, and, and an even share of the bad thing of royalties that have been accrued since then. Ah, oh, so it has been worked out. So yet it all worked out. Oh. Tommy's family's been raised. Oh, you know, his wife's got all his money. Uh, Pete's family and his wife got all his money. Mike's family's got all his money, yeah. and Joe's family's got all his yeah. money. So we're all good. And Bill Collins gets his money too. You know? you know, that's why I started this off by saying it's a cautionary tale because it's you just gotta you gotta live long enough and survive to see the story through because what you're feeling today may not be what reality's gonna be tomorrow. That's and, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, nobody knows what's gonna happen you know, tomorrow. Nobody knows that. Everyone should pray for uh, Pete Ham and Tom Evans because yeah, uh, it's a shame. Yeah. And I and Mike passed, I guess, from an aneurysm in two thousand five. You're the last yeah. surviving member, right? Yeah. yeah, I am. I am. Yeah. Speaking of surviving, you're doing great, and you got a new album coming out. Talk a little yeah, bit about yeah. that. Yeah, I've got a new record coming out. I can't believe it. Um, <laughs> You know, over the years, I've made I've made a lot of great friends in this music world, and uh, one of them is a guy named Mark Hudson. Oh yeah, uh, great guy. Great, yeah, great guy. We have a lot of laughs together, and uh, you know, when, whenever we're together, we sing no matter what together and stuff. <laughs> and uh, he's a great player, a great great singer, great performer, and a great producer. And all these years I've known him, I've been trying to get him to produce a record for me. <laughs> and well, about two years ago, he said to me, hey, let's make that record. So we was able to raise a bit of money and uh, we were able to get started on it. And we did. And uh, we just finished it early this year. Cutting a long story short here. Mm -hmm. I did it in New York, a lot of real musicians, lot in a real studio, real Grammy-winning engineer, Mario McNulty. Nice. And, uh, just fantastic, and the record turned out really, really good. You know, for I was knocked out with it myself. Uh, for, you know, for a record, it sounds like a record. You know, when you listen to it, it actually sounds like a real record. Not something it, produced on a computer. No, it oh. doesn't sound like that. It oh. doesn't sound like that. And we did, we did, we did it all like that. We did all whole songs. We didn't do any. Uh, cut and paste, cut and paste things. Right. We did it all as whole songs, live backtracks. Steve Holly played drums, great drummer. Oh, he's fantastic, uh, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of great players. So. Do you have a title yet? Well, it's the, the album's called Be True to Yourself, and uh, it's coming out on Omnivore Recordings. Okay. Uh, and the first single's out now. It's called Rainy Day Man. It's getting good reviews. And we're going to play it. Yeah, yeah, uh, please uh, play it. Be for you. You 
That's the great Joey Marlin with his new single, Rainy Day Men, which is available on Amazon, iTunes, and all that crap. I don't know. Where the hell do you get? You don't get records anymore, Jim. What happened? Uh, yeah. What the yeah, hell yeah, happened? You know, it's like, it, it's just like technology has replaced so much. Hey, it's replacing radio. I mean, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people, and I, might, I myself for years, most of my music content comes from Apple Music. First collecting it and now like discovering new stuff. So I, I listen to Apple Music. I have Amazon Music. I have a subscription to uh, a Sirius FM that keeps, I don't know, getting renewed at $5 a month. So I'll take it. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, not, not, it's really not a bad deal. But Jim, I want to go back to sure. the root selling because I uh, have one simple question to ask you. Uh-huh. Why did you leave me, man? Something I said? Uh, one day you just weren't there. <laughs> And one day I got called into the program director's office and told, I've decided to make some changes. Oh, the words we love to hear. From yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. That's like, you know, and, uh, and yeah, so, you know, he canned me. And, uh, and I just said to myself, ah, you know what? At that point, I was living in Portland, Maine and uh, coming down on weekends and i have a summer place uh, down in uh, westerly yeah and i was coming down spending the weekend there and doing the root cellar on sunday morning and then heading back to maine you know it wasn't wasn't all that horrible a deal in one way but in another way i'm like so what the credit are you going to do so he put in i think it was john laurenti i bump into john and and talk to him john's a, a great guy yep. he's uh he's up in boston radio now and i talked to john and and john basically he said yeah i've got a whole bunch of people calling wondering where you are i said well i'm laying in bed having coffee <laughs> <laughs> was that around 90 89 uh, it was uh 90 actually it was 93 that late I mean, it was wow. that late yeah i uh it was february of 93 i don't remember the exact date yeah we refer to it as a valentine massacre <laughs> yeah, uh, <I> bet. <laughs> So I, I, I ended up just kind of hanging out in Maine and watching uh, CBS Sunday morning for the first time in 
over a decade. And your and, style uh, of show is gone. I mean, it, it, it really yeah. is. I mean, yes, they have things on Sirius and all that. But in terms of terrestrial radio, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's gone. And terrestrial radio is largely gone. The next guy, after John did the, the Hangover Cafe, the next guy that came in that took over was uh, Pete Silva. Pete Silva's done the, the show a few times. Yeah, guy. yeah, yeah. And he is. He's an awesome guy, and he is an incredible musician and composer. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, yeah. People, you know, a lot of people don't know that, but, yeah, Pete's uh, Pete's really awesome. Great songwriter. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he is. He is, and uh, and very knowledgeable about rock and roll. And he, uh, he, you know, he took over the slot after Laurenti, because um, uh, Laurenti, I think, moved on to Boston, if I remember. No, he actually, he was uh, doing stuff with uh, Jeff Charles and then moved on to Boston. Um, Is he on ZLX? Yeah, I think he's yeah. still on ZLX, yeah. Yeah. you know. It, it, it's, the, the whole thing has become, it's all corporate now. Uh, I remember talking to, I think it was Pete that told me that they had a 60-page operations manual for the station that everyone had this initial, every page. And it's just kind of like when I was there, you know, it was like uh, it was a, it was a whole different thing. It you was very it was rock and roll. You programmed your own show. You didn't have I, anybody I, telling you what to play, right? The, the only two people on air that got to do that were myself and Rick O'B. Rick O'B did it for the Sunday night, the local music show. Soundcheck. And I, and I, yeah, soundcheck. Yeah. And I did it for the, uh, the root cellar. Uh, every, everybody else, uh, it, at first we used, uh, index cards, you know, there would be a, a thing there, a Rolodex case with index cards in it. You'd pick out a card, you'd scribble down the date that you play the song yep. and then you move it to the back of the category. I see. Uh, because every song had, had a category and a category controlled how often it would be played, you right. know, like double A's were played like several times a day. They drive you nuts. And then if you got into the H's and the I's and stuff, they get played like once every few weeks, right. you know? Right. And, uh, and, you know, so it was, but then they brought in the computer, uh, Selector. Uh, Selector is still used. It's a very popular program that's used by most radio stations today. Um, when you call in and make a request on uh, terrestrial radio now, this stuff is already, it's been pre-programmed for days. Sure. All, all they do is they punch a button. You know, yep. Pretty much it spits out and you will be playing this. And you, I, I don't even know if they give you a list anymore, if it just programs into the digital uh, library. But uh, yeah, it's all, it's all done for you. And for that reason, uh, Pete met his demise because Clear Channel, the company that owns HJY and iHeartRadio and yeah, all the others yeah. basically said, well, we don't really need you guys anymore. We can have somebody sitting here making minimum wage, running the, running the uh, controls while we broadcast somebody else who were paying a little bit more than you. And how? But they're, but they're coming out of Los Angeles. How fucking you know? stupid to be so short-sighted. The very thing I'm telling you that I've been saying, the reason I want to do this show, the reason I have you on, the reason I, is because I made a connection with DJs. I, they were, oh, yeah. they were my friends. I mean, they were, I never met them, but man. But they, we all, but we all were. And you know something, 
when, when, when you're sitting there and you're speaking into the microphone, you know, just like now, it's like you're you're speaking to somebody, right? You know, it, it's not like it's not like you. It, it, it's a hard thing to do uh, to learn the technique, but once you, once you learn it, you have it forever. It's like riding a bicycle, you know. Well, I'll never it's, have it because I'm terrible at this. Yeah, you're 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 you're, fi- you're fine with it, and you do enjoy it. And you can tell, and uh, you know, and we're having a conversation. That's and it. That's, that's what radio is about, and you can have all the gimmicks in the world. There are certainly, I mean, most morning hosts have all these gimmicks and stuff, which help them. I actually, the station I last listened to, uh, terrestrially, mm. just play, just play music. Let the music do the talking. Sure. You know. But, well, that leads me to my final question: When you're okay. bringing it back, Jim? When you're bringing it back? <laughs> I've I've had several people trying to urge me along. Again, I think we we touched upon it, but the production it, it's hard to do. It's possible to do. God only knows. I've got thousands upon thousands of songs. And to, to create the format is easy enough. But to put in, you know, even even though I have a lot of experience at it, to put in the research and plan things out, what have you. And then for how long do I do it? Do I just do it 24-7 and, I don't know, take amphetamines or something? Sounds or, good. Or... <laughs> Yeah, well, really. That's what I'm doing. Jeez, <laughs> I, I hear you. The, the uh, but if <laughs> maybe I do something like uh, a couple hours a week or three hours a week, you know, on on top of something. I don't know. You know, I I haven't given it a lot of thought. It was a fun time. Well, I'll tell Boy, you what. If you ever decide to do it and you need someone to bring you coffee and uh, do anything like that, <laughs> I don't work cheap. But I'll do the job. <laughs> I love it. I th- well, thank you very much for coming on. We really appreciate well, it. And thanks for having me on and rambling here, you know? That's it. And I also want to thank Joey Marlin for taking some time to tell us some great stories. And I hope you all tune in again on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Just give me five so I can step out.